2: Plus.
3: Hello and welcome to a new episode of Talking Snooker with Phil Haig and Nick Metcalf, once again talking about the game we all love. Yeah, we're here on uh, Monday evening recording after another amazing week of snooker. We've been treated to
1: a lot of amazing quality over the last couple of weeks and some great stories. And we're joined by a special
3: guests as well. So bumper episode here, I think we've got. They're all bumper episodes on Talking Mm -hmm. Phil, but maybe a double bumper for for everyone this week. Yeah, we'll get to the Players' Championship, of course. What a victory for for Sean Murphy. And yeah, we saw a terrific standard from a lot of players, but particularly him. We will indeed come to that and offer our, our heartfelt congratulations to Sean, but also introduce, as Phil teed there, a guest presenter who's with us this week. And it really is a brilliant one. A prolific writer who has a profound love for this sport. Two decades ago, this man co-wrote the acclaimed Masters of the Bays, profiling every world champion, and has since written a number of outstanding books on one of his other great loves, boxing. And of most interest to us here today, he has just written a new book on one of Snooker's great mythical characters, Patsy Houlihan. We are so pleased to be joined on Talking Snooker, by Luke G Williams. It's great to see you, Luke, how are you?
0: I'm great, guys. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And um, I feel like I'm sort of peeking behind the secret curtain here, um, (laughs) having listened to the show so many times and then to actually be a part of it and to to, to see you with your backgrounds rather than just uh, disembodied voices in in, in my car, Wi-Fi is is a real pleasure. So, and and thank you for the lovely intro.
3: Absolute pleasure. It's delightful to have you on, it really is. And we will say from the top, and we'll come to it in a lot more detail, Phil and I have been saying off the air, congratulations on your book on Patsy Hulian. It, it's an outstanding effort. People are going to absolutely love it. I mean, I've just already used the phrase off there. I use it now on air, a labour of love from you. So much love clearly went into it. It's a great effort and we'll really enjoy talking about it. One of the great characters that we're now going to know a lot more about, thankfully, thanks to you.
0: Yeah, and that's what I wanted to do. Um, you know, I have a bit of a obsession with these niche characters and, yeah, bringing him back to life and bringing him to to the fore, you know, for people that maybe have only ever heard the name was was exactly what I wanted to do. So I'm delighted that you guys have enjoyed the book. And, yeah, I'm looking forward to it getting out there in the world on the 3rd of April.
1: Yeah, and I think, just echoing up what Nick says there, it is, it's a learning process for a lot of people that are reading this because, you know, we're not... You read some autobiographies and they super famous people. And it's like, I knew a lot of that, but you get the odd bit of sort of opinion you weren't sure about. But I was reading this, learning it all from scratch, pretty much, which is an amazing experience.
0: Yeah, I mean, as a writer myself, I don't really have any interest in retelling a story that's been told many times before. You know, most of us snooker fans, we, we know the Stephen Hendry narrative, the Steve Davis narrative, the Alex Higgins narrative boxing that I write in you know we know the story of Muhammad Ali it's been retold many many times so what, what I like to do you know it's got to be a project that captures my imagination and that that I can do some digging on and, and my aim is always to find as much as I can bring the full story forward so that people sort of feel there's no need to ever write another book about that person <laughs> that's what I tried to do for Patsy.
3: Well it, it really comes over and we can't wait to talk in more detail about that and you know that's some tease some brilliant bits that are in the book Uh, coming up in in a little while. But let's first reflect then on that Players' Championship. And, well, Sean Murphy, my goodness, he's been in in terrific form really in recent weeks and it all culminated in this uh, latest success for him. Uh, A 10th ranking event win, but the first for three years, Phil, so that feels significant, beating Ali Carter 10-4 in the final. Great standard for Murphy throughout. In the final itself, breaks of 1-4-1, and uh 141 and 112 in the afternoon for Murphy, and then 89, 103, 88 and 130 uh, you know, in the in the final session. I mean, I had to say I was at Wembley for the League Cup final, so I only saw scraps of it. I know you were keeping much closer eye. It just sounds like Ali Carter didn't do an immense amount wrong. He was just blitzed off the table by a supremely impressive performance from Murphy.
1: Yeah, it was incredible stuff. You won't really see a scoring performance better than that in that match, and over the week, really, it just seemed like he'd crunching along red and he'd be on 17 before you noticed at every almost every frame. I got a text from a mate who I didn't realize was watching it, but he obviously was just saying, Murphy's on a 147 every time I turn the TV on here. So <laughs> it shows how good he was playing, and yeah, he has been coming. Um, he his final game at Ryan Day when he won 6 0 was just unbelievable, and he is the most centuries ever in this tournament 11. Um, and considering that he beat John Higgins eight, which is was that masterful performance we talk about quite often from a couple of years ago in the Players Championship, where he just blitzed everyone. And uh, but Murphy's uh, beat that century record, and he—I don't know if I've ever heard this being a thing. It may well have been, but he's got the fa- he had the five highest breaks of the tournament himself. Which I just—I've never heard of that before. But I'm sure someone will tell me that it has happened. But it seems mad to me. But, yeah, it was just, it was amazing. And, yeah, like you say, Carter, when he got a chance, was all right. He said himself, his safety just just let him down a little bit. But that's because you couldn't be anything but nailed to the bolt cushion or Murphy was slamming in a long one. So, yeah, you couldn't take anything away from Carter. It was just amazing from Murphy. And uh, he's going to be very confident. Now we really are at the business end of the season. He's going to be very confident about this. I mean, Luke, Luke, you as be- well. I mean, yeah.
0: Yeah, I was just going to say. I mean, it's almost a comeback for Murphy, isn't it? I mean, mentally, I'd almost started to write him off a little, a little bit. I know he reached the World Championship final pretty recently, but he'd had injury problems. He hadn't looked that good. He'd been doing more mm. punditry. I think some, I, I was sort of starting to think, you know, as as his time passed, you know, is he going to be coming back strong? Enough? And now ahead of Sheffield, you know, he'd maybe be the favourite or one of the favourites. So it's a bit of a comeback and, a, and a, unbelievable performances. Not just this tournament, but he was looking great in the in the Welsh as well.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think it's when, I suppose, it's when players get to around the 40-year-old mark. He is 40 now, isn't he? And when a dip in form, then you, you start to wonder whether is it a dip in form or is it the end? <laughs> We're getting towards the end there. And especially, like you say, when he was talking about, when he, do, he does the punditry and he was saying about I need to sort of prepare for after my career here. So th- there was a reason for us to think this, but yeah, I mean, what a way to come back and he looks as good as anyone now.
3: He really, really does. And uh, yes, yeah, some people are saying, why couldn't he be clearly one of the leading contenders? Some people even saying perhaps a favour for the Crucible. I mean, it feels important that he's got to 10 ranking titles. Let me just read out the list here, which puts it into context. Starting with Ronnie O'Sullivan on 39, then it's Stephen Hendry 36, John Higgins 31, Steve Davis 28, Mark Williams 24, Neil Robertson 23, Judd Trump 23, Mark Selby 21, Ding Jun 14, and then Sean Murphy 10 alongside Jimmy White uh, with 10. I mean, you're obviously a keen student of the game, Luke. This is sort of quite a list, clearly. And I've said for a while now, we tar this brush a little bit of players underachieving. I'm not sure you can quite say that for Murphy anymore. Okay, he's so supremely talented. Yes, he could have won more. But 10 feels significant, doesn't it? I mean, it's a long wait since his last one, but it feels like he's in, you know, very special company there.
0: Yeah, and it also feels like, you know, if he maintains this form, that there could still be many more as well. You know, he's he's such a talent. He's got he's got the solid technique. You know, he's got the great cue action. Um, but I think what really is going to propel him, you know, to the Immortals would would be another Crucible crown, and, and that I'm sure is what he's targeting. And it it does seem, you know, it's been a, such an open season. But then, as we get towards Sheffield, you've always got to look at those guys that have won it before, haven't you? Because it's such an advantage. Last year, all four quarterfinalists I think were previous winners, and and so Murphy's got to be up there and in the mix. And and some of those other guys who've won it before have not been in such good form, so. It's, it's intriguing to, to, to see how far this renaissance of his, of his can go.
1: I always think Murphy's a really good example of how you have to win. You have to win the tournament for it to count for anything. Because these three World Championship finals seem to count for nothing in his legacy, really. People just think, oh, he's a one-time World champion. You need to win more to go up that next level. Whereas in, in the three World Championship finals, he's lost. He's won 39 frames. That's a huge amount of World Championship frames that World Championship final frames that he's getting almost no credit for on his on the sort of legacy basis. So, um, that's just the way of it, isn't it? Though you really do have to go away with that trophy for people to seem bothered about what you've done, which just seems very unfair, but it's the way of it.
0: Where would you guys peg Ali Carter as a sort of contender for, for Sheffield, you know, as someone who's, who's not quite gone all the way before? Has is it two finals? I, I think under mm. his belt and, and and very good form lately. What, what do you think about his chances?
3: Well, I said far stranger things have happened, and let's face it, a million times stranger things have happened than that. I mean, <laughs> he's been in two finals, unlucky to run into Ronnie both times as well. If he if he's there already without having to qualify, ooh, I don't know. I mean, what? Just tying in a little bit with the general sort of time of the season it reminds me of when John Higgins blitzed to the title the players Championship, it so impressively and I do remember us saying on here Phil I think you were actually pinpointing it pretty well and saying it's a long time for him to keep that form till Sheffield and that would be my thing even for playing so well as Sean Murphy is it's still six or seven weeks and that tournament's all about peaking so can he keep it going can Ali Carter keep it going I don't know if they can, but I'll tell you what, it'll be thrilling if either of them can, particularly in the case of Carter. I know he's the Marmite figure, but I've said many times, you know, that to me, him fighting for the biggest titles is one of this sport's most compelling sights. If he does it at the Crucible again, roll up, roll up, Phil.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's he's got the game for it, isn't he? He's he's sort of so well-rounded, great attitude. um, Most of the time, he's he's still battling sort of, not let his head go sometimes, which it does still occasionally. Um, but yeah, definitely, they're all a contender. And any if anyone really in the top sixteen, you've got to consider a a genuine contender, and certainly ones that have won tournaments this year. I mean, what I would say, like you're saying about sort of holding form, I'd look back at certainly since the Players Championship was in this sort of format, no one who's won it has then gone on to win the World Championship. Or, or you could say that for the tour championship as well, which is even stranger because that seems like the perfect setup. Um, you know, the t- the tournament just before the big one, longer frame seems to get you in should get you right in the, the world championship mode, but no one's won that and then immediately gone on and won the world championship either. So that shows how hard it is to to hold your form. Um, but at the same time, you know, you'd rather go into the world championship in great form. So uh, what can you do? You've just got to go and win your matches.
3: I think as a superstitious sort of type I uh, I've always thought not good to win the one before um I just feel it's just that was a, certainly was a golf thing you know you don't want to win the week before majors and it was kind of the thing with the chop China wasn't it before the Mark Selby of course it, only he would blow out, blow that out of the water by winning China and then winning it in Sheffield but that was always seen as a yeah it, it's funny isn't it the vagaries of form holding on to it but what we just have to say is that this was just brilliant stuff for Murphy all the way, wasn't it? And maybe we'll look back at some of the earlier stories then, shall we, and uh, kick off in the in the last 16 and look at the results from there. Well, Ryan Day beat Chris Wakelin 6-2. It was Joe O'Connor 6, Mark Allen 3. Uh, good, great win for O'Connor, what form he's in at the moment. Tyron Wilson 6, Xiaoyou Long 2. Sean Murphy saw off Mark Selby 6-3. So out of sorts, Selby, it has to be said. Mm-hmm. We all thought, he didn't we, Phil, that after what happened at... You know, we're winning that title before Christmas, we confidently predicted this could be a you know new phase of Selby. But he's looked so ordinary since. Yeah, he, he was really bad in that game, as bad as I've seen him,
1: really. And uh, I did sort of worry if certain things are regressed off the table. And then his interview afterwards did sort of suggest that he had things going on um, that he needed to sort out. So, yeah, he was bad uh, on the table. But... Um, Whatever he's, I don't know what he's going through there, but uh, hopefully he's uh, he can he was talking about getting it sorted and get things back together for in time for Sheffield. So let's hope he can do that.
3: Yeah, definitely. Uh, Robert Milkins um, beating Tom Ford at six five. We'll scrap that one. And then I watched quite a lot of the Ali Carter Jud Trump match. That was I thought just something special about the end there where. Honestly, Judd Trump just laid so many fiendish snookers. It, it was quite outrageous. I mean, Ali Carter called it torture, which is um, <laughs> made me laugh, only because, you know, in the snooker sense, you know, they, the, the things these guys go through. But it was weird because Trump kept playing these brilliant snookers, and then just when he had the advantage, he'd play an awful shot. It was mm-hmm. such a weird conclusion. But, um, yeah, you, Luke, I love that sort of idea of torture. That's what these guys go through, isn't it? Just... Snooker after snooker, and you could visibly see Ali Carter not one to really hide what he's feeling anyway. You could visibly see how much he was just struggling and wilting out there.
0: I mean, yeah, the men, I mean, it's one of the things that makes the game so fascinating, isn't it? That sort of mental, prolonged mental torture that you can become embroiled in, not just in a match, but over seasons. I mean, look, I'm I'm the biggest Jimmy White fan in the world and I've had my fair share <laughs> of torture over many years and you wonder how these guys come back from from it sometimes you know the way that that Jimmy you know still going now you know and, and came back from from all those those finals you know phenomenal mental fortitude that that these guys show you know year on year match on match because it is a game that I can imagine I mean my small experience of playing it. Um, I, I once played, it reminded me of your Mio trophy sort of thing. I once played a first to eighteen match with a friend of mine, and I was absolutely <laughs> exhausted after the two days of that. Oh my yeah. word. Exhausted. <laughs> I've never been so mentally drained. I think I slept for about 16 hours the next day.
3: Oh, Phil, don't give us ideas. I mean, you know <laughs> uh, you that know? would be my annual leave for the year if we were playing first rate. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <Not very
3: bad. laughs> Imagine asking Dave Tyndall to referee that. Bloody <laughs> hell. We'd have to get him quite a few pints for that, wouldn't we? <laughs> 18-16 but... I lost. It was oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, <God>. misery. <laughs> oh dear. Well, there we are. That that is um I've got the, the cogs of an idea there. Uh, Luca <laughs> being Jack Nasowski 6-4, Gary Wilson six Ding we three. That completed the last 16. And in the quarterfinals, well. I saw bits and pieces of the Yali Carter six Robert Milkins one and Milkins looked like he was running on empty actually. Frankly, mm. he just you know, winning that tournament, he looked like he not wanted to get out of there, but it was just yeah, a bit, a bit of a step too far. Uh, Joe O'Connor beat Luca Purcell six five and then Sean Murphy six Ryan Day nil. I think you mentioned it earlier, Phil. Breaks of 104, 107, 105, 85, 133 for Murphy. I mean, day had a couple of early chances in in, in a couple of the frames, but really he couldn't do anything about that. And Kyron Wilson beat Gary Wilson 6-1. But we're already getting an idea, were not we, Phil, this was a man Murphy in just the most extraordinary peerless form.
1: Yeah, that was outrageous from Murphy, really. Um, The game against Selby, he'd he'd looked really good, but he'd given away chances. And as I said, Mark really wasn't playing well at all and still managed to win three frames. So it wasn't... It wasn't quite uh, unstoppable stuff from Murphy, but then uh, it was against Day. It was just outrageous. Three centuries and 85. Scandalously didn't make a half century in the, in the fifth frame, but then a 1-3-3 three, three to finish it off. Um, so, yeah, uh, he, he, he laid down a marker. If he hadn't done the week before, or he, he'd just been continually laying down more and more markers over the last few weeks, but that was uh, the most significant one for a while. Um, and yeah, what a win for Joe O'Connor as well! Two wins there to kick off with beating Mark Allen, who whose form has just dropped off a little bit, which obviously it was always going to because it was so so good. Mm-hmm. Um, but he did well to beat him, and then and a, a really good match against Luca Broussel. Luca, I love watching Luca. He, he, his, his win against Lisowski was brilliant to watch, and then Joe did really well to beat him in the quarter. So um, O'Connor is certainly one of the coming men. He's uh, he's really rapidly risen up there. Of the rankings this year. And uh, he looks like he's got got everything, really. Um, it's just not at, you know, he's got all the bits. They're just not quite at the highest level yet. But he's, he doesn't seem to have any obvious
3: weaknesses. So, very encouraging for him. Luke, you, we'll maybe come to you and ask you a bit more about the semi-finals then. I mean, Ali Carter beat Joe O'Connor 6-4. Uh, it's going to sound ridiculous to, to even aim any criticism at anybody that's doing as well as Ali is but I I can still he's getting there in terms of the way his mentality is changing but I still think he lets things get to him and maybe this is the work Chris Henry still needs to do get to him too much he looks in a bit little bit again of torment a bit that that matter he does that, that, that thing sometimes where no one's allowed to have a fluke against him you know he can get in one of those kind of moods and uh, they're all like that mm. to some extent don't get me wrong they all think the world's against them. But, you know, every time that, you know, he, he was getting one against him, it was, oh, you know, typical. And, but but listen, he got over the line and that was a good sign. But Joe O'Connor was ahead in that match and looked like he might might do it himself at one time. But but Ali Carter won 6-4. Uh, and then Sean Murphy beat Kyron Wilson 6-3. Breaks of 135, 59, one 3 and 94 for Murphy. I mean, just incredible standard to uh, to carry on. So two, two interesting sort of... Uh, semi-finals there and set up the final that I think most people kind of expected and was a lovely final in the end.
0: Yeah absolutely I mean two of the two of the form guys in, in the final which is always um, good to see um, and yeah I know what you're saying Carter and his his temperament it, it does seem to be one of one of the things that that's still a missing piece in in, in his jigsaw but again I mean there's a guy. I mean, I was casting my mind back last season. He had a very quiet season from from memory, mm. um, and it, we do seem to be in a bit of a pattern of the moment. You know, with a lot of these players, you know, who are getting on a little bit in years, that you maybe start to write them off or think, oh, maybe they're finished, and then they're sort of coming back again. Milkins, obviously, being another one. So mm. all all of that means Sheffield is wide open. Obviously, we favour the former winners, we always do, but anybody out there in that draw could could make an impact and. I know Phil seems to have a soft spot for Luca Brasiel, and, and and so do I. He's still not won a game at the crucible a match at the Crucible, has he? Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. I would love to see somebody like him have, have a really good run this year. Someone like Mark Allen, who's not had a great run in the Crucible, you know, a great record at the Crucible. I'd love to see someone like him, you know, pushing on. So it'd be nice to mix in some some new new Crucible faces, as it were, people who maybe not made the final before, along with some of those old hands as, as well. But it's it's just so intriguing as we head towards April.
1: Yeah, that's a crazy set about Luka, isn't it? Never won a match. And I think he's had five goes. There. I think he's played there five times, lost all five. Um, and one of them was ages ago and he was like eight years old or something. I think he was 16. Um, <laughs> um, so we can let him off that one. But yeah, I'm sure that will change very soon, especially because he keeps going as the seed as well. So he should be doing all right. But um, yeah, that'll happen. And yeah, with the Carter thing, it's a bit like how, um, you know, like Ebdon's working with Lasowski now at the minute, but, you can't, you can't, you can help these things and help temperament and give people things to work on and stuff, but people's personalities are just their personalities to an extent. Mm. And you can't just, you know, and Carter says he's working on it and he probably has got better overall, but he says himself, like, I'm never, I can't just get rid of that edge to my, to my whole character. Um, and you probably wouldn't want to either because that probably helps him in other ways. Um, but yeah, so these things can be sort of refined and smoothed off a bit, but um, he's still going to have, a little bit of Mr.
3: Angry in him sometimes, isn't it? That is a nice way of saying it. Now you haven't had one of those for a while, but it's fully deserved. <laughs> it it was absolutely absolutely correct. You, you wouldn't want to lose it. And but it's it, you just feel it's about tapering a little bit and maybe aiming it slightly more towards ging yourself up sometimes rather than you know. Getting so at you know outwardly annoyed about flutes going against him, but listen, I think he I think he is doing that, and he he's just got to be delighted with the way he's playing at the moment, and you know getting to another final, it's so encouraging for him, and uh, obviously for the winner, Sean Murphy, we have to say congratulations. I mean, three years it is sort of ridiculous on so, in some on some levels, isn't it? I mean, all all kinds of reasons for that, of course. Uh, he did reach a world final, you know, in between that, so not as if he hasn't been knocking on the door. And actually, it reminds me, Phil, you know, um, people saying were asking me last night, do you think he's playing better than when he reached that world final? And I think he lost 1815 in that final. So literally a few frames from winning it, the title. And I have to say he, he is. He to, to me, he, he he is. So, you know, there are so many nuances and little variables when it comes to that 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 marathon of the mind. But you know, he is in to my mind and eyes playing better than then. So why can't he have a great one A? Eh? Yeah, I think definitely consistently, as he says, he's been building
1: up all season. Really, there's encouraging size there, and he's been getting better and better. And he was consistently good all week and last week, really. Um, so yeah, whereas in that when he w- reached that world final, no one was expecting that when he when we got to the Crucible, other than he's got a good record there. But form wise, that came out of nowhere, and even during the tournament, he was sort of showing it in patches and stuff. And you know, there were enough patches to go all the way to the final and win 15 frames in the final, so they were good. But um, I would say now, I agree, he's playing consistently, consistently better, and the highs are higher as well. Like, I, I just can't—you can't really, as I said at the start—you can't really be putting on scoring displays better than he has been. You know, Monocleon 11, 11 tons in. How many frames did he win? Uh, what's that, 20, 28 frames, 11, he won 28 and knocked in, 11 of them were centuries, yeah, that's incredible.
3: Well, isn't the 16 the world record I, I saw somewhere? 16 the, yeah, the record at the Crucible, yeah. Which is 70, 71, 72 frames, I mean, it's just yeah. re- remarkable standard, I mean, I know we keep saying it, but it's just so, so special, and, and I know I didn't see too much of the very closing stages, Luke, I know you're, you know, we're all busy people, we don't see everything, but Overall view on these sort of tournaments generally, they've been great additions, haven't they? I know me and Philip praised them enough times, but you're on with us now. These sort of uh, 32, 16, eight-player tournaments, they're just, it's the sort of cream of the season. And it's no surprise, is it, they keep throwing up these tournaments with top standard and, you know, great drama.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I will be interested to, to see the viewing figures because, you know, some of the big names were absent. And there was quite a lot of talk about that, wasn't there? So it'll be interesting how the viewing figures held up um, on ITV4. But yeah, I mean, we're in a, the game is in a strong position in so many respects that I think we've got a good variety of formats now, good variety of broadcasters. Um, I think if we can build back some of those foreign tournaments that obviously have, have have gone missing through the through the pandemic, then then snooker can be in a really good place.
3: And Phil, I know. He- We'll talk a little bit more about about this later. But Jason Ferguson making relatively optimistic noises about China coming back tournament in Shanghai that we used to enjoy so much. So let's just hope that is the case because that is clearly one thing we're missing. And uh, it, it felt like a very domestic season again, isn't it? But that for various reasons we know about. But uh, yeah, the, the more the more we can head Paul, as Luke suggests, the better.
1: Yeah, definitely. And in China is obviously the massive one in terms of having you know four ranking tournaments, or whatever, whatever it was, plus Shanghai. Um, but yeah, he did sound optimistic about Shanghai in the summer, which would still be a small event, probably sixteen. Well, I don't know, it was sixteen players, wasn't it? Maybe not even that. Um, but um, yeah, but also elsewhere, you know, China is obviously the main one financially, and that would be huge for the sport. But we want to get around Europe. We want to get wherever we can, really. Australia would be great um it is it is very domestic isn't it very uk centric um with a couple of trips to germany really that's all all we've got at the minute so um yeah
3: we we want to spread our wings definitely that would be a plus for everyone i think indeed i mean any other particular talking points i mean i think we all yeah this is very much a Sean murphy episode We're talking about mm. Sean we do the they do the one four seven pod film <laughs> But this was maybe not such a good Sean moment. Uh, I certainly didn't think it was. And with reflection, nor did he, when he went on ITV and spoke to Jill Douglas, a presenter, and uh, a couple of pundits there, so of course, it was Neil Foles, wasn't it, and Ken Ken Doherty. And, and Sean <laughs> not taking kindly to the idea that, that snooker players have lapses in concentration. Now, it, it probably is a cliche we all use too much. I think we all recognise that. We all, we all sometimes, you know, grab those all-encompassing phrase phrases where sometimes it might be more of a technical issue. We get that. But I, he didn't really kind of say it in the right way. I think he later said that something had annoyed him and wh- whatever the presenter or pundits had said, he'd have gone off the rails a bit. Um, we've all been in moves like that, and most of us don't have to go on telly, frankly. So there are various reasons, you know, we, we understand it. But to me... I would say, Phil, he was right right to apologise. He recognised that you know he didn't come over that well, and um, and obviously we'll, we'll move on from that. But it it was certainly we, we all had a bit, not a bit, maybe a bit too much of a laugh. But we, we were we were we were labelling all kinds of life moments as lapses in concentration for a couple of days. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I
1: watched it live, and I thought it, I thought it was a little bit weird because I didn't know why it annoyed him so much. But I didn't think it was that bad. But then it was quite sort of, a lot of response to it, and people thought he'd been quite rude to Jill and sort of Jill Douglas presenter, been sort of attacking her almost. But I, am, I hadn't really seen it that way. I know she'd sort of bring up brought up the lapsing concentration thing, and that's what he was responding to. But obviously, he'd thought about it previously, heard it a lot previously, and that was just the example that he was sort of responding to. So I didn't, I didn't really really see it as him sort of having a go at Jill. Which a lot I think a lot of people did see it like that, and that's why I apologised. So um I think it sort of got blown up a bit. But um I was still not quite sure why he was so annoyed about it, but it clearly was minding him up. And also I think there's definitely is something to lapses of concentration. Even if you want to call it something else, even if you want to call it taking your eye off the pot or something, you know, there were there were I mean, obviously anytime this happened for the rest of the tournament, people were really zoning in on it. But when when a professional player misses a pot that I would expect to get. Yeah, it's because they're not really concentrating on it. They? They're thinking about the next shot or they've just taken it for granted. There were a couple of ones where um they're on the blue and they're going into the pack, say. And the blues are gimme, but they're just thinking so much about how they're going to go into the pack and they end up missing the blue. And, you know, there's distractions, but you're still not concentrating on the bot properly. That's why you missed it. So yeah, um, I would disagree with him, but uh he probably knows a lot more about Snook than I do.
3: <laughs> not probably. Um, no. <laughs> I'm I am only, I'm only, be, I'm only you, I only hurt the ones you love. But Luke, Luke um, you've obviously written about sport for a long time. You, you know about sport at the highest level. It's easy to have sympathy with these guys as, as well, isn't it? To have to go into a studio straight after performing. You know, it's like us going in and talking about it after a day at work. We just don't fancy it sometimes, do you? Especially when you've been the high intensity of sport. So of course, they're not always going to say everything perfectly and occasion, they let themselves down, won't
0: they? Yeah, I mean, y- your emotions must be so raw in that moment. I mean, you know, boxing's another sport I cover a lot, and I mean, even more so in boxing, where, you know, a microphone gets shoved in the face of someone who's just been taking a pounding to the skull and might be concussed, and, you know, yeah. you're expecting them to, to to speak to speak sense and to be diplomatic and, and so on. You know, we, we expect a lot of our sports people in this age of media training and when they maybe fall a little bit short I think we're sometimes a bit too too quick to sort of jump on their back and I I think I think Sean showed his class with his sort of reaction to it you know he 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 reviewed it he went back over it and 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 he and he he apologized Um, I don't think he had masses to even apologize for but I think again that that shows the sort of man that he is that, you know, he, he wanted to, to make sure that no one's feathers had been ruffled. And I, I think, did he, did he give Jill a, a, a box of chocolates or something or a, a <laughs> bottle of wine to sort of apologise? And, and, I, and I think that's a measure of of, of his class, really. Um, although he's, he has, with the bloody amateurs thing last year, there's a, was it was that what he said? blood Was it bloody amateurs or was it just amateurs? I can't remember. <laughs>
3: Might <laughs> have been just amateurs, <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah, well, exactly. Well, yes, yeah, well, as I say, these guys do however many dozens and dozens of interviews they're going to. But listen, I have to say that there's the flip side. I think Richard Mann may have been one of these, our, our good friend from Sporting Life, Bill, and saw a few people actually saying, wait a minute, be careful what you wish for. You want everyone to sit on the fence and kind of, you know, they were saying, actually, not only did you have a point, uh, you know, about that being a cliche, you, we actually want our, our sports people to be outspoken and they might get it wrong. Maybe Ronnie got it a bit wrong with that Daniel Wells comment recently. But at least they're saying stuff, and that's the sort of lifeblood, isn't it, Luke, of what we do as journalists. And you know, if everyone was moribund and just said, "Oh, it's a game of two halves," or whatever the snooker equivalent is, <laughs> two halves, then, then then we'd soon complain. And so with the fans, I'm sure. Well, yeah. When I mean, when you're a journalist, you you live for those things. I mean,
0: whether it's was, was it your story. Phil with um, Hassan Vafai and talking mm. about Ronnie O'Sullivan, whether it's Sean Murphy. I mean, the the thing about the amateurs was, you know, getting stories on snooker in the Guardian and papers like that that rarely cover it. So, you know, the, these sort of things grab the column inches sometimes, and that, that's the game we're in. And you know, the old saying, no good, no publicity. No publicity is bad publicity. So, um, if it gets a bit more attention on on the sport, that's no bad thing, really.
1: Yeah, I and mean, that, that's always how I think. And I always think maybe I'm just being biased because I'm a journalist. But when you know, when I you know, judge as the odd sort of real sort of sore loser interview and people really kick off about it, but I'm just like, no, it's great. Think of the column inches. But I recognise that not all people think in that way. <laughs> that's because it's our job to think like that. Um, but, yeah, oh, 100% I agree, though. I'd much rather someone say something that I completely disagree with or comes across badly than just say something... Dead boring, you know. Um, I'm going to randomly attack someone here, but I've never heard an interesting Harry Kane interview. I don't think he's ever said one thing interesting. And, you know, he's an amazing player and I'll support him playing for England, but I can't love someone like that. I can't be interested in someone like that because I can't remember one interesting thing he's ever said. So I would take, you know, Sean Murphy being randomly a bit annoyed about an old cliche over a billion Harry Kane interviews.
0: I mean, and who, who's still the most sort of beloved snooker player of all time? It's probably still Alex Higgins, isn't it? And I mean, he, he, there was never a dull minute when he was around. I mean, he did some terrible things, yeah. but he was on the front page of the tabloids and that's the time when snooker had more eyes on it than any
3: other time. So, so yeah, it is what it is, I guess.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Well, perhaps a, a reference there to a, a character from yesteryear it might be a time to to, 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 to translate transmit ourselves into, into the world of of Patsy Houlihan. What do you say, Phil? I think it's high time that we, we delved into, I mean, just a wonderful past in so many ways, which you brought to life in in your book, Luke, which is the natural, the story of Patsy Houlihan, the greatest snooker player you never saw. And even in that title, you say so much, the greatest snooker player you never saw. I mean, Tell us obviously a lot more from what I'm going to say here, but there's one shot that's ground on video of of this man. I mean, in a way it's heartbreaking, isn't it? You bring a lot through these pages, but one shot, and quite a a prosaic shot at that. And this is someone that was absolutely brilliant, but a long time ago, lots of tapes lost. We don't know much about this player. We've not seen him. So you talk about niche. This is real niche with Noveson, but... (laughs) Brought him to life, and thank you for doing that.
0: Oh well, it's it's been my pleasure really to 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 write this book and to become immersed in his world. And like you say, there is something a bit a bit heartbreaking about it. I've been searching for footage of Patsy Hulahan for for years, and there is only one shot that sort of seems to be in existence, which is uh, weirdly enough from a mid nineteen eighties film starring Bob Geldof called Number One. <laughs> uh, which was uh, a sort of product of the snooker boom, a, a quite surreal film, really, in many ways, which I which I look into in quite a lot of depth in, in the book because it's yeah. an odd footnote in snooker history. And I speak to some of the people involved in, in the making of that film. And, yeah, Patsy had a sort of bit part in the film and was a technical advisor on the movie. And there's one brief shot of him, I think, sinking a pink, um, and that's all there is, you know, his match with Thorburn at the Crucible in 78. Highlights were shown on the BBC, but the tapes have long since gone. Um, all his amateur exploits in the, in the 50s and 60s were either unrecorded or the, the few games that were on ITV were, were not even recorded at the time. It was just broadcast as live with no tapes kept. So, yeah, it it's heartbreaking, really. But through the testimonies of, of the people that, that did see him and did know him, you know, this was one of my aims of the book was to try and keep his legend alive and, and his name alive by because there are people out there that, that are still alive that did see Patsy play. Um, and I wanted to record their testimonies. We, we can't watch him play, but maybe he can come alive again, you know, through their words.
1: Yeah, and that is a real highlight for me of the book is just the wide range of voices you've obviously spoken to and put so much work into finding and getting amazing stories from um we don't want to give any spoilers out because uh or too many anyway but if you had to pick one or two that really stood out as you know you went to see and maybe thought i'm not gonna not sure what i'm gonna get here but you were like that was absolutely brilliant
0: yeah oh it's it's, it's difficult you know i did speak to so many people some of them you know just random people who contacted me through facebook or twitter who saw that i was writing the book and You know, general members of the public who used to play snooker in Peckham or Deptford and had some sort of a story about Patsy or had seen him. But I guess amongst the snooker community, a few that stood out. Obviously, Jimmy White was was a massive one. Jimmy has very kindly written a foreword to the book, and he was he was a great friend of Patsy's. And his generosity the whole way through and willingness to talk to me about Patsy was fantastic. Um, Maybe my favourite next to Jimmy would would be Tony Mio who was a player I very much admired when I was growing up and and sort of disappeared from the snooker scene, really. doesn't really have anything to do with the game anymore. I was trying to track him down. I managed, through some sort of internet research, to find a business address for him. No contact numbers or emails or anything like that, just literally a business address, which I don't even think is his residence. It was like a post box or something. I can't remember now. So I just wrote him an old-fashioned letter... You know, dear Mr. Mio, <laughs> I'm writing a book about Patsy Houlihan. Is there any chance you'd speak to me about him? Thinking probably the letter would never even find Tony Mio, let alone that I'd get a response. And then literally I was at home one day. I think there were about eight children running around my house because we had a play date. And my <laughs> mobile phone rang and and it was Tony Mio on the phone. <laughs> you know, I got your letter. Brilliant. And... Um, <laughs> He told me, actually, so Gods of Snooker, the brilliant documentary, which I I really enjoyed. Mm. But he said he turned that down and he basically turns down pretty much all interviews, you know, these days. He doesn't really, from what he was saying, have much interest in the game anymore. It was a section of his life, no bitterness, just a section Mm. of his life that's now over and done with. He's concentrated on his family and his business. It's just something in his past that he doesn't see the need, you know, to keep going back over. So he basically, I think, pretty much turns down all interviews, but he basically said that because he had such respect for Patsy, such love for Patsy, you know that he would talk to me, and that we had a really enjoyable sort of half hour, forty minute phone conversation. And I think that that really, for me, was maybe one, of, maybe the highlight in in terms of who I spoke to, just because it was somebody I didn't think I would get hold of. It was somebody that's not really connected with the game anymore, and it's somebody who purely spoke to me because of their love for Patsy Houlihan no other reason and, and and that was really
3: special that was really special i think that's brilliant and i tell you what there'll be lots of people listening to this that their ears will have pricked up there they thought you spoke to tony mio because mm-hmm. even uh, i've been involved in conversations over the years and the things i've done and people say you know do you know anything about tony mio when's the last time tony mio spoke he, he's basically become a snooker recluse as you suggested you know he doesn't do interviews no one really knows particularly about his whereabouts even. Yeah, he's just a private man that's got on with his life now. As you say, that's back in the 80s, the 90s, and what have you. So what you say there comes over in the book, his sheer love, and Jimmy's love, and for that era and knowing him, you know, you almost got the feeling of a benevolent uncle type type thing. That was almost a relationship, almost familial type thing. It was um, – they had a real kind of bond, didn't they, obviously – you know connected over the table but that really came over as a a great love
0: yeah and I I think Patsy was a very sort of fatherly or grandfatherly or you know avuncular avuncular character and so many people spoke about that side of him and and this I think is one of the great things for for me about Patsy is you know when you when you read the book and you realize you know the missed opportunities that he had and the the career he could have had that that he didn't have for all sorts of various reasons. Um there was no bitterness to him. And he was still always there, even, you know, even in his later days on the circuit, you know, people like Alan Robidoux, Tony Drago, you know, who who met him when they were on their way up. That he, he always had a kind word for everybody and a lot of encouragement for people. Um and I think that was a really special aspect of his character. That there was absolutely no bitterness to Patsy whatsoever. You know, he Things things hadn't worked out for him in his career, but but he was always willing to to lend a hand to others and 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 have a kind word for other people, and and that is one of the things that I think because endeared him to Jimmy and Tony, who were only teenagers, you know, mm-hmm. when they knew Patsy, and I think he became for them this sort of um, almost heroic, you know, entertaining character who regaled them with stories, and I think he helped fuel their love of their love of snooker when when they were growing up.
1: And I think one bit and this comes across in sort of Clive's books and stuff when uh, there's almost like, the evil Empire of the professional game back in the day and like you're saying uh, Patsy you felt no business but I think you can really sense when you get to the bit about Joe Davis especially one chapter that you sound quite angry about it and I think maybe have you de- developed such a love for Patsy doing this all this research of this book that you felt that you seem to get like really passionate about Joe Davis,
0: holding people back. Yeah, D- Davis the dictator is the name of that chapter. or maybe went a bit <laughs> too far. I'm sure if, there, if there's any Joe Davis fans out there, or sort of diehard Joe Davis fans, I'm probably not going to be um, their favourite writer, but um, and look, you know, Joe Davis was a phenomenal snooker player and a, and a crucial figure in the history of the game, but I think something I tried to do in that chapter, there's sort of two main things about Joe Davis that have always slightly wound me up which are the first one is that in the early days he didn't really like snooker. Um, he would often talk about how superior billiards was and snooker was a slapdash game and and all of this. So his love for the game, from my perspective, was a little bit artificial and born out of commercial considerations that snooker was clearly the coming game and that snooker was clearly where he could then make his money. And he sort of so then he sort of adapted towards snooker. And fair play to him, you know, he had to he had to make a living. But that sort of past of his involving his criticism of snooker has been a bit overlooked, I think, in in this in some of the snooker history books. Um, and then the other thing about him is that, you know, once he'd established that position of supremacy, if you like, within the game, is that and in a way this makes him the opposite to Patsy. He wasn't particularly encouraging of other players. It was very difficult to break into the professional game, and there was this sense that. He wanted as much of the pie for himself as possible, and but if he opened it up, you know that would affect that would affect his financial slice. Mm-hmm. So I don't think he really had necessarily the game's best interests at heart. And the game, and the game nearly died, you know, when Joe Davis ret- retired in in sort of uh, '64, and previously when he'd retired from the world championship, you know, the game was in a pretty pretty ropey state because there was such a small cast of characters, and yet at the same time. In the 50s and 60s, there was an incredible array of amateur talent out there. Patsy was just one of them. Cliff Wilson, you know, Ray Ray Reardon, you know, before he became professional, um, Mark Wildman, some some fantastic amateur talent that if they could have tapped into that earlier, you know, snooker's rise, which only then came about in the 70s, could could have been much earlier, and people like Patsy could could have been you know early superstars of, of, of a earlier modern era of the game. Mm-hmm.
3: But the important word that comes over time and time again is hustler, isn't it? That That's kind of what Patsy became. Even people that know a little bit about him, that's how he, I know he used to hustle, and that's kind of what he became known for. And I love the sort of descriptions in the book of how, of how he, he'd sort of quickly get to understand how another player was feeling their nerves, and he, he was sort of an expert at, at sort of deciphering other players. Tell us about that sort of hustling image of his.
0: Yeah, so I mean, I think essentially he t- he turned to hustling, but because there was no other, if you wanted to make money out of snooker, the professional game was pretty much closed off to you. It was a closed shop. If you wanted to make money out of the game, you you had to hustle. You had to get involved in money matches, um, and there was a real subculture of that in in the fifties and sixties. And and he was probably probably the best at it. Um, he was able to disguise his own play. You know, I think he was. You know, he'd he'd go up and down the country. He'd 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 walk in. He'd he'd order his cheese roll. He'd he'd flash a little bit of money. He'd turn down the chance for a game. Then eventually he'd say, "Oh all right, I'll give you a game then." Um, and he'd start off, you know, he'd disguise his form, and, and then he'd draw back and you know take them for as much as he could because that was how he was earning his living. You know, it was that or, you know, hauling crates down in the Deptford docks, and and he preferred to to play snooker, and the only way to win money playing snooker was by hustling. I mean, it changed a bit later for him because once word got out of who he was, you know, and he was recognisable, you know, the hustling doesn't work so well. So I think then that's when he, you know, would develop these other sort of wages. So Steve Davis talked to me about the fact that he heard that Patsy, you know, he'd have to play games where Patsy wasn't allowed for the white ball ever to hit the cushion or Patsy was only allowed to pot the, the yellow or the green, but no other colours. So he developed these other wages to try and, to try and draw people in. He'd play with only with the long queue. Um, he'd play with the back end of the queue. One of his friends claimed he he played someone once with a broomstick rather than a queue. So he <laughs> any any method he could find to make a match interesting or to entice a wager out of somebody, you know, he, he would take the opportunity.
1: And I mean, that shows just how good he was, but how good is your impression of him? You know, there's the quote from Jimmy White that's saying he's the greatest player he's ever seen. Do do you think he was that accurate or was that a fondness and Jimmy sort of enjoyed his style of play or do you think he really was that good?
0: It's impossible to tell without without footage, but, I mean, in terms of the the talent that he had and the the shots he could make, um, I personally... From everything that I've, all of the research that I've done, I, th- I think had he been allowed to turn pro, I think he would have won the world championship in the in the fifties or sixties. I think that was his peak, mm-hmm. and I think we have to remember that when we, when we think about what people like Jimmy or Tony Drago or Cliff Thorburn or even Steve Davis say about Patsy, is really they were only seeing Patsy ten years probably after what was actually his peak, because by the seventies when he was when he had turned pro and these guys were watching him in. in in the clubs, he was probably past his best by then. It was the fifties and sixties when he was really at his best, and I, I think he would have he would have won the world championship. I think he would, was at least the equal of the, the John Pullmans and the and the Joe Davises and the Fred Davises around that time, but but he never got the
3: chance to to prove it, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And as you say, those later years, he did play at the Crucible and played in in many tournaments and had some very good wins, but he would have been either pushing 50 or even into his 50s then. So unfortunately, he he just, everything was, a lot of things were against him, weren't they? His age, the insular attitude of a lot of those people like Joe Davis and others as well that were involved in the, you know, the, those that were making money out of the game. And he just felt like th- there's kind of a sadness running through the book uh, as well as a very upbeat thing, which is, what might have been is that a fair comment what might have been is the theme around his life in many ways
0: yeah absolutely um yeah it's like it's a sort of I think and I think Jimmy said it you know he, he he just missed out you know he was at his peak when when the professional game wasn't really in any sort of a large state or you know lucrative state and then in the in the 70s and 80s when by the time patsy was on the circuit you know he he was he was a bit too old he had a lot of eyesight issues and also the still really until the early 80s the game was still a bit of a closed it was a sort of a new closed shop you know the professional circuit was still pretty small i think in his first sort of eight seasons on the tour, Patsy only maybe had eight or nine matches. I can't remember the exact figure, but you know, there wasn't, it's not like it is today where, you know, you had tournament after tournament. So he never really got a chance to have a lot of match play on the professional circuit until really the late eighties, early nineties, by which time, yeah, he was in his sixties, you know, that's when he was playing the most matches in a season he'd ever played. But by then, you know, down at hundred odd in the rankings and in his sixties, he was, you know, just playing in the qualifiers. Um, so yeah it is a bit of a there is a sort of a, tra- a tragedy to the story and a sadness to the story but but yeah at the same time you know there's there's the pleasure that he that he brought to the people that he did know and you know these these mythical figures in sport there's there's a romance to them isn't there you know there's a romance to 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 jimmy still you know well, because because he never won the world championship in a way he might be more remembered than than some of those that did so there's a bitter of, bitter of, there's a bittersweet, a bittersweet thing going on there, I think. As there often is with these sort of maverick characters who who also have their flaws, because Patsy did have his flaws as well.
1: I, I really found and I, I feel like romance is the right word, it might not be, but he also had a maverick drinking habit, which I found very interesting. The way you described how he could drink an awful lot and never be drunk despite never eating. It was it was quite incredible.
0: Yeah, the, the, the landlord at his local pub said he drank a crate of light ale every day, basically, but never seemed drunk. Um,
1: That's inspirational stuff. <laughs>
0: yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, sort of takes me back to my university days, except, except I was drunk and I probably never got to quite a crate <laughs> and I couldn't pot a single ball if I'd been drinking. Um, but yeah, but I mean, and, and I think this is the other thing in a way that the book is about is it's a bit about You know, I I grew up in South London, and when I actually finally sat down, having done all the research about two or three years ago, to actually start to actually write the book rather than just have the research for it, I'd actually just moved down to the suburbs, just out of London, really. And in a way, I think I'm trying to capture a place and a time that probably doesn't exist anymore. You know, the, the snooker hall scene, the hustling scene, the pub scene these things have changed so much now. And, you know, Patsy in a way, wouldn't, wouldn't almost recognize South London anymore. And I'm not necessarily saying that's a good or a bad thing. You know, Mm -hmm. it's just the reality life moves on times evolve times change. But for me, you know, who grew up in the eighties in South London, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm trying to capture a bit of the South London I used to know that doesn't really exist anymore. Um, and so, yeah, I think the book's also also about that—that that particular time and place, that particular culture and subculture—that's probably gone gone forever now, and we'll, we'll never get back again. Because snooker's now a massive professional circuit; the, the hustling scene doesn't really exist anymore because there's no need to. it. If you want to make money from snooker, you enter the tournaments. That that option wasn't there for Patsy, um, so so we'll never we'll never have these days again.
3: Yeah, I'm glad you said that. It- it's a lovely piece of social history as well i mean obviously it will appeal it will appeal predominantly to snooker people and people listening to this podcast but you know i i, I assure you that you know there's plenty in there for the non snooker lover as well the characters you, you like the whole mythology some of these extraordinary venues it's just yeah a wonderful slice of a of a of a time and 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 uh, a place and a part of London that in so many ways gone, at least the spirit of it has gone. Um, Just want to go back a little bit to your own journey with this book. I mean, this isn't something that you, you know, you did in the last four or five years. Is it, this goes back about a quarter of a century and you'd almost call it an obsession, would you?
0: I'm quite an obsessive person. And yeah, it has been an obsession for a long time. So it sort of all began actually with, Uh, Jimmy White I think it was his first autobiography Behind the White Ball which was published I think 1998 from memory and there was just a sentence in there where he said I rate the three greatest snooker players of all time in my opinion are Alex Higgins, Patsy Houlihan and Charlie Paul and I remember reading this sentence I was a massive snooker fan and there were two people in that sentence I'd never even heard of and I thought you know what's this about Um, I did a bit of digging couldn't find anything I don't even there was some internet back then but I couldn't find anything about Patsy Houlihan or Charlie Paul on the internet Um, and then a few years passed and then it must be about 2005 I was reading the Observer Sports Monthly which was a great supplement that used to get every month in the Observer and one of my favourite writers Jonathan Rendell was a predominantly a boxing writer brilliant writer bit of a tragic figure he'd written a feature about Patsy Houlihan because he also loved Jimmy White and had spoken to Jimmy White and Jimmy White had told him the same line about Patsy Houlihan greatest player or one of the greatest players I've ever seen and Rendell had gone and found Patsy in a in a Deptford pub wrote an absolutely brilliant feature article one of my favorite bits of writing I've ever read Um, and that was when I was doing my book The Masters of the Bays with with Paul Gadsby, who used to work with you,
3: Nick. He did. If, um, yeah. I, I hope Paul's listening to this. Great guy. Fa- fabulous, fabulous man, Paul. And yeah, we should say that Master of the Bays was a was an excellent book, which you can still pick up. Where You profiled every world champion, didn't you? I mean, talk about a labour of love. I've known Paul a long time. He adores the game. I know you do too. That must have been a great book to work on.
0: Yeah, I mean... We were, we were young there. We'd worked together pre-Paul being at Teletext. We worked together on a startup football paper. Um, and I can't even remember how the idea of the book came about, but we, it was through our common love of Snoke And we were like, you know, let's write a book. It'd be a fun thing to do together. We divided the the champions up and, and, yeah, went and researched them. So, yeah, I was researching this book. I was going to the British Newspaper Library in Collindale. And I found they had all the back issues of the billiard player in these big volumes in Collindale. And I was meant to be finding out about, you know, Walter Donaldson or or whoever it might be. But I kept finding Patsy Hula <laughs> in these old copies. And I photocopied everything I could find about Patsy Hula. And I think I spent about a week when I was meant to be doing other stuff, just finding all the articles I could about Patsy. Um, and I think at the time I thought I might write some sort of book about snooker in South London or something like that. And I tried to contact him. again, I wrote him a letter, a bit like with Tony Mio. I found his name in the phone book uh sorry I phoned him up from the phone book and I spoke to Patsy just once on the telephone um saying oh I'm gonna write this book about Snooker in South London I love Jimmy White I've been reading about your career and he was pretty polite um said oh at that time he was ill he was laid up in bed so he said Oh, send me a letter you know we'll see what we can do maybe we can meet but then he died not not long after that so I never got the chance to sort of properly talk to him or meet him." Um, And it sort of grated with me. I wanted, I had all this research. It felt like a missed opportunity for me that I'd not properly met Patsy and spoken to him. I did get in touch with his family and I did a couple of sort of tribute articles, one in snooker scene, short obituary in The Guardian, you know, to sort of commemorate his death. And it was always there in the back of my head that there's a a book here. I thought John Rendell would probably write it, to be honest, but he sadly passed away a few years later. And I just carried on collecting this material, over the next 10, 15 years, whatever it might be. And eventually I had a huge box of stuff. Um, And then, like I say, I moved house two, three years ago. I was unpacking the box of Patsy Houlihan stuff, and I thought, I think it was just before the pandemic or just the beginning of the pandemic, I thought, maybe now's the time. So I got in touch with Patsy's daughter again, dug out all the stuff and thought, right, now's the time to actually get it written having having collected this stuff for you know 20 years or whatever now's the time to now's the time to write it
1: now how, how do you go about from from there this is not really a question more of just a an author question from do you go Did you have someone you work with with other books where you, you can go pitch ideas to because we as we say we, we love it but it is niche i like imagine if you go and say oh, well, i've written this book about snooker you'll never have heard of <laughs> That might not be easy to get over the line necessarily.
0: It's a tough sell. Um, I was lucky. So Pitch, who published it, I've, I've never worked with them before. But I do have a good friend called Paul Zanon, who's written a lot of boxing books, Yeah, um, who's worked with Pitch on several occasions. Um, Paul is a great guy. And he kindly sort of did an introduction for me. Um, and I think the Jimmy White thing helped because by that point I'd spoken to Jimmy and he'd agreed that we could use his sort of interview as the basis for the foreword. So Paul was able to give an introduction and say, look, you've not heard of this guy, but Jimmy White loved him. Jimmy White has done a foreword and and that's a hook for the publisher and and that got them interested. Um, So I was lucky, you know, often in publishing, you know, if if you've got contacts, that is obviously very helpful and very useful. If you don't have contacts though, I mean, back in the Master of the Bays days with Paul, we just did the old-fashioned thing. We put, we wrote two chapters, wrote a synopsis, chapter breakdown, sent it off to four or five publishers, and and one of them took the idea. So, so yeah, there's different routes into it, but I, I was lucky and I know a lot to pull for the introduction to, to pitch.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, that all makes sense, and yeah, no, good, good question as well, Phil, because that's something that I think will interest a number of people about how you know how you start these things and how you go about it. You, you mentioned Patsy's daughter, some of the most touching pieces in the books uh, 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 in the book is uh, uh, when you're talking to her you you get the feeling that the family are are embracing this and they're just you know they're so uh, grateful to you actually for bringing this story to a wider audience
0: yeah I've had a great experience with with the family and and I had met them so I'd met Patsy's daughter and his son years and years ago when I did the obit sadly his son had, had actually died in the intervening period so when I was wanting to, you know, write the book. I hadn't spoken to his daughter since all those years ago. And I got back in touch with her via Facebook and she's been incredibly supportive. Um, And yeah, the family, a lot of them I've not met yet, but we're going to be having a little sort of launch event in, in uh, June in Deptford in one of the old clubs that is still there where Patsy used to play. And I think all of the family are going to come to that. So that'll be a nice occasion to to meet some more of them. But yeah, his daughter's been amazing. And, uh, you know, she had so much love for her dad and I think, yeah, they're, they're very touched and very happy that that he's sort of being immortalized, if you like him in, in print, that there's something there that they can pass on to their children and grandchildren and great grandchildren, you know, a document, if you like, uh, about who their da- who their, who this, who this Patsy Houlihan was and, and what he achieved. So the family have been, have been fantastic. And yeah, I've had some great times with, with, with Patsy girl, you know, looking through her old photo albums and, she's got an old box of clippings and stuff and 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 she opened all that all of that open to me and put me in touch with many of his friends as, as, as well who are still around so yeah, that's been a great experience
1: um as part of the book definitely and what, one thing I wanted to ask about is the cover because it is brilliant and I'm sure a lot of people on Twitter will have seen her on social media um did you find that photo how did that come about
0: yeah, so that's one of the photos from the from the Jonathan Rendell um, article from the Observer. Um, there were five or six photos um, used with that article, and again, it was a bit of a sort of a detective job. I I looked up the name of the photographer. He's a guy called Andy Hall. Managed to find his contact details, emailed him out of the blue. You know, you I don't know if you remember taking these photographs. <laughs> 15, 16 years ago in Deptford of of this guy called Patsy Houlihan, you happen to still have them. Um, Unfortunately, you know, Andy is a total pro and he's he's got some incredible archive system. He had everything filed away, all the original contact sheets and everything. He met me in Costa Coffee in Camberwell with his contact sheets. Mm -hmm. So not only was I able to see the photos that appeared in the article, but also all of the photos that he took from that whole shoot, that whole day were there. Um, and, and very kindly, he and he and Pitch came to an agrain, arrangement that we could we could publish some of them in the book, including on the cover. So there's some photos in there that were never originally published, um, wow. which you know, which Andy Hall still had. So that was a that was a brilliant moment for me when 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 I sat with him in Costa Coffee and he pulled out the contact sheet and it was you know three or four pages worth of little images that I'd never seen before of patsy and john Rendell, it was it was that was a great moment a um, great moment and andy's a, a great guy who funnily enough lives about four miles from from where patsy used to live so he's also a sort of south london based guy amazing
3: it's a great piece of work the, the research you've done is brilliant it you know it's going to appeal to so many people listening to us i know and just to find out more about this character. I wonder why more people over the... I mean, you're obviously very grateful they haven't. I wonder why more people haven't been interested. You talk about Jonathan Rendell as yourself. I mean, it's just... It's extraordinary character. I guess life was made up more of extraordinary characters there, and there was so many in Snooker. Perhaps it's that, but it's funny, isn't it? Because when you read about him, he is so compelling. It's funny that the mantle's fallen to you, Luke, to tell the story.
0: Yeah, and I I mean, as I was saying to you guys off air earlier, I I only really, when I write books, I'm only really interested in writing about people that have not properly been written about before, or characters who've maybe fallen out of fashion or been forgotten about. I did a boxing book about a a slave turned boxer called Bill Richmond. And again, that took me about 15, 16 years to the process of research to writing it. And the whole way through, I was thinking to myself, because that's another great story. Surely someone else is going to come along and, you know, beat me to it or, or or write this before I do, um. And in the end, I think I'm the last person standing, or or maybe everyone else gives up, or maybe they're they're not as uh, obsessive as me. I don't know what it is, but and the, and the same with Patsy. I was convinced someone else would do it at some point, um. And I think there was maybe another writer half sniffing around when I got back in touch with his daughter, but 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 she went with me, and the other writer, don't even know who it was, sort of fell away. So. I guess maybe it's my determination or obsessiveness sort of leads
3: me to be, to still be stood there where other people have given up. <laughs> Tell us how, how you can get the book. When's it officially published? You know, what are the best ways to get hold of it? And, you know, any more details you want to give, you know, in terms of plugs, please do, please do so now, sir.
0: Yeah. So it's published on the 3rd of April. Uh, you can pre-order from all good and bad online bookshops um best way to do it is if you go through the pitch publishing website that gives you all the different links to the different outlets where, where you can buy it and you can choose one that suits your uh, own ethical tastes um and you can just go into any bookshop as well and you know it's on the system you can you can pre-order and hopefully some of those bookshops will have it in stock as well and if all that fails hit me up on twitter boxiana journal send me a direct message and you and you can buy a copy directly from me which I, which I'll sign for you as well so so yeah, ho- hopefully everybody that, that wants to read it can get hold of it.
1: I wonder if you can get it on the merch stand at the Crucible in April. I don't know how any of that works, but that wouldn't be a bad place for it.
0: Yeah. I, you know what? I need to email them. They, Masters of the Bays was available the year it was published. I think we got in touch with World Snooker and, and somehow they managed to get copies on the stand. So that's on my to-do list, actually. You've reminded me. I'll, I'll drop them an email tomorrow, maybe. <laughs> um, yeah, they got a merch stand. <laughs> And it has deliberately been timed to coincide with the World Championship. And yeah. it's um, 45 years since Patsy's only appearance at the Crucible this year. So, mm. um, so yeah, I'm going to contact World Snooker. If they're listening, um, please sell my book
1: at the Crucible. That would be, <laughs> be great. It would be the best thing on that bloody merch, stand, that's for sure.
0: <laughs> I, didn't say that. I didn't
1: say
3: that. Everyone from World Snooker Tour listens to this podcast, so don't worry about that. Luke. I really could listen to you for, for hours. You you are a compelling voice, and we'll have to find a reason to get you back on it one day. <laughs> thank you very much indeed. Thank you no for problem. writing the book. Best of luck with it. I, I know it. Will, I know. I know it will do brilliantly, and people will, will give you loads of compliments when they get hold of a of a copy. And thank you so much for joining us.
0: Total pleasure, gents. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, so echoing Nick's thoughts. That's been brilliant. Loved it so much. I hope they maybe see you up in Sheffield.
3: That'd be the dream.
0: Thanks, guys. Have a great have a great night. Thanks, thanks for having me on.
3: Pleasure, pleasure, and uh, that's that's Luke G. Williams there. What a brilliant guest! My goodness me, talking at length there about his uh, his truly brilliant book on on the Patsy Hunahan, which we're, we're not you know we're not just saying it, Phil. We we both did delight in reading it. It's a it's a, it's a it's a time it's a it's a time capsule, actually, in many ways, isn't it? Of of, of yesteryear of these, this mythical character, um, you know, bringing a mythical character to life. It's just, uh, this sport, you know, is so rich with these stories. Say, Luke, then why hasn't anyone else decided to do this? Because when you read about him, you think, my God, the people he knew, the characters he had around with, just the names of these characters. It's just (laughs) wonderful stuff. Yeah, I guess
1: people aren't willing to put the effort that Luke's putting because you can tell um, how how much time and effort has gone in there and it's been a, been well worth it yeah it's uh, it's an amazing sort of history lesson but told through an amazing story so uh yeah really really loved it and uh yeah it's the first time we've seen or spoken to luke isn't it um properly and he he was a brilliant guest as i agree with you i could listen to and talk about that for ages because that's the passion and the warmth that comes through the book as well so yeah highly highly recommend that to anyone i'm sure you can already guess that we recommend that book but uh yeah if you
3: need a need some reading or someone needs a birthday present, I'd, I'd go with that. <laughs> Indeed. Well, we are going to shoot off soon, aren't we, Aren't we, Phil? This, this is Talking Snooker here. And we maybe wrap up a couple more lines before we do. Friend and colleague of ours, uh, Hector Nuns, with a story in, in recent days about a delay uh, to this uh, hearing involving the 10 Chinese players suspended and charged with match-fixing offences. Uh, this is uh, from Hector. The Snooker Authorities had hoped to stage the Independent Tribunal by March, to at least have a chance of the process being tied up before the World Championship. But delays have seen the provisional scheduled date pushed back until the end of April, with the Crucible extravaganza starting on April the fifteenth. Well, I know Jason Ferguson has spoken to you as well in recent days, Phil. He says we are pushing to get this thing on as soon as possible. We're subject to legal process, which will dictate the time frame. But the sooner the better, from our perspective, all papers have been filed and they're in the process of appointing the independent tribunal. That is not done by us, but that is being done right now. So we're very close to knowing where we're going. Yeah, it's not going to be ideal, is it, to to tie in with the crucible. I mean, it's going to be a a very bad news story in the middle of what we generally hope is a very good news story. But them's the breaks. These things, you know, by their nature tend to be delayed, maybe we shouldn't be that surprised, but um it's going to be a real juxtaposition possibly when we head into the spring, eh? Yeah, it's, it's far
1: from ideal, isn't it? And uh I don't think it's well seeing because follow the WPBS or anything, you know, that get lawyers involved and things take a long time and cost a lot of money. Um And yeah, I don't know, we don't even know when that will come out, you know, if the hearing takes place late April, you know, we're nearly at the end of the World Championship there, then it might, we don't know when the results of that hearing or anything would come out, you know. Um, yeah, I mean it'd be really sad if it was coming out on the eve of the final or something mad like that. That would be really not good at all. Um so let's hope that doesn't happen. Um and yeah, I mean it's it's you want it done as quickly as possible for the players as well. I mean, they're suspended, we don't know what their verdict is yet, um, but they're gonna be have, they're gonna all have been suspended for quite a long time before the hearing takes place, which is also not ideal. Um, so, yeah, as quickly as possible. And uh, it's not ideal it's during the World Championships. But, you know, there we go. Hopefully the snooker will be so good, which I'm sure it will be. But,
3: um, our mind's taken off that a little bit. Indeed. Now, with regards to women's snooker, we've got a big tournament coming up the World Championship, Phil, which we're going to enjoy in the days to come. But we have also just seen the World Cup which was won by India, the India first team against the England first team uh, in in the final, and that is uh, quite an effort. You were just saying to me off air that you watched a little bit of it. I mean, hell of an effort there from the Indian team. Yeah, I caught I could, just the last frame. It went to the decider, so it was, uh, um, yeah,
1: went down. It went down to one four three to India, who had also beaten uh, Thailand in the semis. So they be, beat Mink and Ploy in the semis which was, I guess, pretty big upset. Um, and then an even bigger upset to beat Evans and Kenner in the final. Uh, I must admit, I know very little about the Indian pair. Um, but, yeah, congratulations. That was a superb win. I guess it's the sort of the warm-up in a way to the, the World Championship, which starts tomorrow, tomorrow being Tuesday, in Thailand. But, yeah, I mean, they, they were loving it. I saw a great tweet from Matt Hewitt, who runs a lot of stuff for the women's uh, snooker, saying that... Um, very emotional scenes afterwards. Of course, it means a huge amount to these guys. So, yeah,
3: congratulations to them. Indeed. Ami Kamani and Anupana Ramachandran winning that uh, match against Rianne Evans and Rebecca Kenner. So, yeah, hell of an effort there, winning uh, 4-3. Had a little look at the semi-final results here to fill you in a bit more as well. The England first team beat Hong Kong 4-2 and then the India first team beat Thailand's first team or Thailand 1, I think is the way they call it, 4-3. And then, as I say in the final, uh, congratulations to the uh, India 1 team beating England 1. Well, Phil, the Championship League is back underway. I mean, there are more episodes of this than EastEnders than an average. <laughs> it's it's back. No Ronnie O'Sullivan, though.
1: No, he was going to be playing on Monday, Tuesday. Um, it's no massive surprise he's pulled out. It's always sort of just not really announced, though, is it? It's sort of you go to watch Ronnie Sullivan on the Monday morning he's just not there. Leo Hashan's there. And it's like, OK, fine. Um, but, yeah, we we, we carry on. Um, but, yeah, pretty good start for Maguire on the Monday. He's got the league table there. He's won three of his first four matches and that's a man in uh, quite Dionysian form after not having some for a while. So, uh, yeah, we've got the seventh and final group on uh, Monday and Tuesday and then the winners group really is um, something to look forward to. I know Championship League is no one's favourite tournament, but the winners group will have the winner of this one, plus Lissowski, Bingham, Kyron, Trump, Higgins and Robertson. So that ain't bad, is it? Um, I think for those first two days, the first and second of March, that will be worth watching to
3: see who lifts the title. Never heard of them. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a relatively quiet week or two, isn't it, actually, I think, before we have the the classic the, the mm-hmm. one that we hope to, we hope to uh, see in, in Turkey, but there's still plenty of treats right around the corner after that, including the tour championship. And then, of course, Sheffield, the big one, uh, is, is now just about what six weeks away, I think, for just a bit more than that. So, uh, and the qualifiers will really be before that, of course. So, we're all, we're all starting to think about our potential winner, aren't we? Wary that they're still, you know chance for form to come and go but uh, maybe you'll ask mark williams again You're, and uh, you made me laugh somewhere i was thinking about that in the week because i just i know you both i just imagine that conversation about you saying how open it was and he was saying no <laughs> it'd be <laughs> one of the normal ones <laughs> yeah. Right.
1: yeah he was right wasn't he oh he's playing pool actually today he's playing an ultimate pool probably right as we're speaking so we'll see how it gets on i imagine quite well uh, knowing mark
3: williams Yes, uh, I, I, I would I would imagine his skills would transfer over pretty well. Um, next week, we should say, we've been trailing it a while. We have Colin Murray on the podcast, uh, one of the UK's biggest uh, television and radio personalities, the host of Countdown, former host of Match of the Day and a uh, big show he has every night, weeknight on, on national radio on Five Live. But of course... Predominantly, as far as we're concerned, uh, for many years, he presented the snooker on Eurosport. He loves snooker, genuinely. You know, I, I've, you know, certainly worked and subbed enough of his of his uh, very fine columns over the years on the game. You know, this is not just, you know, someone that was brought in to do a sport and thought he'd try. It. He loves the game. So I know he'll have some great interesting stories and just, just i just want to find out where it's night like going on the night out with jimmy and ronnie that's what <laughs> that's all i really want to know phil that's not going to be a quiet night at the library is it
1: no it's superb yeah uh yeah really looking forward to that one um i don't know colin at all i know you know him more through metro paper but I, i've been in the metro office today on monday and uh, a couple of um the paper guys were very excited about that the chance that colin was coming on here he Say what a great guy he is you'll really enjoy it so, yeah, which I, I knew anyway, but it was lovely to have that confirmed. Um, so, yeah, looking forward to that. We I know we've had a lot of questions and correspondence in, but uh, you've got a few days to get any
3: more in if if you have any. Um, so, yeah, i will be uh, next week. Yeah, we've had loads. Yeah, yeah we've we probably never delved into it. It's quite boring more than anything else about the different stream. We, we both work for Metro, but we essentially work for very different parts of it, don't we? Mm. I mean, integration has, has come more into the... Sort of the thinking lately, but you know, it's a bit never the twain should meet generally over the years, isn't it? We both work for kind of different places, which always a bit can people say, Well, you must be doing this together, and actually, that's not always the case, but it gets quite political. So, yeah, as I say, I would know Colin for the fact he'd written for the newspaper and we've met up and gone out with Colin on different times, but of course, you have your own kind of generally separate team even though we join up a bit more lately. So it's a it's a funny one, isn't it? But, let, you know, let, let's maybe not dive into Metro politics ever again. <laughs> of, yeah. uh, no, it, it's always one that needs explaining
1: whenever this comes up first. I mean, it was ones that I needed explaining when I started working there. I couldn't believe it, really. We're, we're in the same building, but not on the same floor for most of the times. And for a long time, you were the only person I knew who worked for the Metro paper, despite me working for Metro, but only writing for the website. Just, that's how separate it was. Didn't know anyone else, but there's been a bit of integration now. But, yeah, they just, uh, they were completely different operations, really, the paper and the website. But, um, yeah, this is probably very boring for the people. But I, it's, people are always surprised to hear that, I think.
3: Well, I'm old enough now to remember when, when websites first came in the newspaper world. And I just remember some, almost, you know, think about it now, some wonderful... You know, quite bad attitudes, really, from some of the old newspaper guys that wouldn't be seen dead writing the website. You know, there's the you know they the last thing they'd ever want to do, and they want anything to do with it. But um, I think you know, people thought maybe it was like a, a craze or something that wouldn't quite you know take off. And of course, that those days are long gone. That's two decades ago now. Now it's obviously absolutely massive, and now newspaper guys they want to write for online because they know that that's the reach they can get. Times have changed so much. But um, anyway, but maybe we should depart rather than talk any more about <laughs> websites and newspapers. We'll have, another, we'll have another media episode at some point for that. We'll have to do that, definitely. Thank you for your company, wasn't Lucci Williams? Brilliant. See you next week for Colin Murray, the, the, the presenter of Countdown. I cannot believe it on this podcast.
1: Yeah, amazing. That is huge, isn't it? It's
3: huge. Um, yeah, looking forward to it. And thanks to everyone
1: for listening as always. Hope you enjoyed Luke. And uh he wouldn't he wouldn't be as brazen as this, but buy
3: his book. Just buy his book. <laughs> no, he's far too nice to say that, but yeah, we really urge you to do it because it's an excellent book on, on Patsy Julia and, and he was a brilliant guest. So that's just about it then. And congratulations to Sean Murphy, uh, and of course, the host of another Snooker Podcast phil which you can listen to via the usual podcast avenues. Um Talking about some of the bad booksellers, we're the same, aren't we, Phil? We chuck the podcast out to all the the reputable podcast providers, but the rubbish ones get it as well. So don't worry. We always yeah. you can't go wrong. The worst <laughs> ones available. We'll still have it. <laughs> See you next week for Colin Murray then. Thank you very much for your company. For now, from Phil and myself. Cheerio. Sports
2: Social Podcast Network.